Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and contemplating the F word all together. It's our final episode. And every episode for the last few years, you've gotten a pair of what we've called feminists to talk about a thing they couldn't get off their minds. But today I'm not going to call myself a feminist. By the way, I'm Shayna Roth, senior producer at Slate and longtime producer of The Waves. And I'll be joined later in the show by former Waves host, June Thomas. She's been a part of The Waves since it was known as Double X Gabfest. She's not going to call herself a feminist either. Because really, what even is a feminist? This is our final episode of The Waves. And let me say up top that it has been an absolute privilege to produce this show and to frequently host this show. Those that have listened consistently enough to these episodes know that I have more than once used them as an opportunity to try to sort out my own complex feelings about something. And this last episode is going to be no different. You see, I've been trying to sort out what it means to be a feminist since college. I did this thing for my senior seminar called the Jane Doe Project. I had wanted to put on a production of the Vagina Monologues at my small Christian college, but that got shot down. So I interviewed women from campus who had experienced violence and created this mixed genre play. While the play was mostly focused on violence against women, I brought some levity to the whole thing with sketches about just being a woman. There was a poem about getting hit on using the worst pickup lines I could find. Are you from Tennessee? Because you're the only 10 I see still haunts me. And smack dab in the middle of the play was a monologue I wrote for myself called The New Feminist. It was my early 20s attempt to make feminism cool and to try and find my own place in the world. It hit on very small stakes things like wearing high heels and reading Jane Austen, but still believing in women's rights as though those things were mutually exclusive. I thought it was radical. And maybe in the late 2000s, it kind of was. I mean, this was, after all, the era of America's Next Top Model and tabloid fever consistently dissecting female celebrities. In the time since, we've seen some pretty impressive strides for women. The Me Too movement, the Women's March, a woman finally winning an Oscar for Best Director, more women on the Supreme Court than ever before, and trailblazers from Greta Thunberg to Megan Rapinoe to Roxane Gay, who, by the way, had a much better title than New Feminist. She called her manifesto Bad Feminist. Forbes had an article declaring the 2010s as the decade women fought back. But now we're at the end of 2023, and I'm still wondering, what does it mean to be a feminist? Does the word still work? Because despite the strides, you still have plenty of people throwing around the word feminism like it's a joke. And honestly, given all the problems that have arisen within the feminist movement, I can't stop wondering if we should just throw the whole word out altogether. So, in honor of our last episode, I'm going to be joined by a true legend of the waves and honestly the perfect person to help me sort through all of this. June Thomas is an original host of the waves and she's working on a book about lesbian spaces that's due out next year. I'm not going to promise that we'll come to a solution, but we will have lots of interesting thoughts. Stick with us.
Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Shana Roth, and I'm joined now by an original Wavester, a voice that is very familiar to many Slate listeners, June Thomas. Hello, June. Shana, it is so nice to be here, even on a bit of a sad day. It is a sad day, but we're going to we're gonna pump it up because you're here, <laughs> I'm here, we're going to make this thing work. There will mm. be no tears. No. And to start off with, I have a very easy, simple warm-up question for this episode. Mm. I'm, I'm joking. You know what the question is. It's not easy. It's existential <laughs> and very difficult. But we're just going to jump in with it. What is your definition of a feminist? Well, thanks for starting me off uh, with an easy one. <laughs> I mean, the fact that you're doing multiple episodes of The Waves on this topic, and here I am tap dancing like mad to avoid answering what is a very straightforward question. Yeah, this is surprisingly difficult to answer. You know, feminism developed through a whole series of people and groups sharing ideas and debating them. It wasn't a top-down situation with an organized party, much less a political party, like coming up with a series of beliefs. And if you agree, you're in. It was more like these are things we're thinking about that are going to make life better for women. And let's keep coming up with more great thoughts and gathering more supporters and pushing for change. Like that's how it kind of got going. And so, yeah, there's no agreed upon definition. And I, I suspect that that vagueness has often been intentional. You know, the thinking might be, let's assume that women are feminists until proved otherwise, rather than providing things for people to disagree and distance themselves from. But yes, I know, still not answered. Um, <laughs> uh and yeah, I mean, if you Google what do feminists believe or what is a feminist or whatever, however you want to put it, there is no set answer. You'll sometimes get these arch definitions like feminism is the radical belief that women are people, which like, yeah, <laughs> but I'm not really sure how helpful that is. So let's get to something concrete. When I was coming up in Britain in the 1970s, there were seven demands of the women's movement. They were listed in a few places. And these were equal pay, equal education and job opportunities, free 24-hour nurseries, which I'm not sure if that is a, a word that's typically in use in America, but obviously it's referring to childcare, free contraception and abortion on demand, financial and legal independence, an end to discrimination against lesbians and women's right to define their own sexuality, and finally, freedom from violence and sexual coercion. And you know, 50 years later, that list, they don't seem all that radical. But at the same time, free abortion on demand, that has clearly not been achieved in the United States and in many other places. And free 24-hour nurseries is also very far off most places in the world. At the same time, that basic sense that, hey, this is about equality and women won't be equal until these conditions apply, uh, that seems really basic and reasonable. Um so I guess from my point of view, the parts that seem like they're not achievable, at least anytime soon, are anything with the word free attached to it. You know, <laughs> ladies, Mr. Capitalism would like to have a word, you know, about your about your cute little demands. Yeah, we don't like free things, apparently. But I do like those seven demands. And I think it's incredibly frustrating that as a pragmatist, I'm over here like, you know, that's a really sweet idea. But good luck, ladies. I mean, 
to me, feminism is one of those things that the older I get, the more complicated it seems and the harder it feels. Like when I was growing up in the 90s and the aughts, I mean, feminism was just girl power. Thank you to my own British experience with the Spice Girls. Girl power is about being individual, being whoever you want to be, wearing your short skirts, your wonder bras and your makeup, but having something to say as well. And now, because I know so much of the world and what's possible, it's about so much more than, yeah, girls are just as good as boys. I mean, and I also feel like feminist is a word that often gets taken for granted. Like, we're all just supposed to know what it means and what counts. But there's a lot of disagreement over the years about what it means to be a feminist and who, for lack of a better word, qualifies for example, let me ask you this. Can women who are anti-abortion be feminists? Wow, you really, it's just, it's just softball after softball. Today. I am here um, to <laughs> just cradle you, June. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. So let me admit to something that is slightly embarrassing, but uh, I don't know. It's something I believe in. Um, when I am unsure about a political debate, I remember Sinead O'Connor ripping up that photo of Pope John Paul II at the end of Saturday Night Live. We find it necessary. We know we will win. We have confidence in the victory of good over evil. Fight the real enemy. Iconic. I mean, yeah, right. It, 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 I've held onto that for years, and it, again, I'm embarrassed. But that is the ultimate test for me in in any kind of political debate. If I'm presented with competing positions, I ask myself, "Who's the real enemy?" And and I know the word "enemy" is strong. It feels too contentious. It's like it's it's ramping things up maybe too much. But I use it because it pushes me to try to figure out who is arguing and why they're arguing and to try to figure out who has the power in the situation. Because in most cases, that will you know, help you figure out where you should belong. So yeah, let's talk about some of those really tricky questions. Can women who are anti-abortion be feminists? For me, yeah, absolutely. Women with a different set of beliefs aren't the enemy. However, having a view is one thing. If those anti-abortion women then take actions to prevent women from getting abortions. That's where things change for me. If they lie about the safety of abortion, if they work to restrict the rights of women who need to end a pregnancy, that is not feminist. I don't know if they still get to call themselves feminists. It's hard to stop them. But to me, that is uh, like a really significant line that has been crossed. Uh, You know, if people are listening soon after this comes out last weekend, there was an outstanding episode of Amicus Slate's podcast about the law, and it was called Texas Abortion Law's Cruel Outcomes, where Dahlia Lithwick talked to two women who've been in court fighting Texas's restrictions on women's reproductive freedoms. And I defy anyone to listen to that and decide that there is any way that a feminist could support those laws. There are conservative men, conservative organizations pushing them, and those people, those those forces behind those laws, they simply do not care about the right of women to control their own bodies and their own fertility to the extent that they think about that. It's that they think the answer is women should not have that power. And that is definitely not feminist. Yeah. 
Hard agree. And that hits on a big part of feminism for me, which is that a lot of it is about action and how your actions affect other women and gender minorities. You can personally think that, hey, I wouldn't get an abortion. I think it's wrong to do so. But if you're going around making it hard for me to make medical decisions about my body, well, then we have a problem. And it's the same way with just general ways of living. I mean, I hate when people make the bad faith claim that, well, feminists hate traditional marriage and want all women in the workplace. Like, no, we just want the option for all people. But I truly don't care if you're a woman choosing to stay home with your kids. Honestly, there is a scene in Sex in the City with Charlotte, of all characters, where she yells about this when she decides to quit her job when she gets married. And she's kind of right. And speaking of not forgetting... Hello? You were so judgmental at the coffee shop yesterday. Excuse me? You think I'm one of those women. What? One of what women? One of those women we hate, who just works until she gets married. Charlotte, it's 8.15. That's not a response. It's an 8.15 in the morning response. The women's movement is supposed to be about choice. And if I choose to quit my job, that is my choice. The women's movement? Jesus Christ, I haven't even had coffee yet. It's my life and my choice. But... It feels like there are women and people who go sort of way in the opposite direction. I mean, what about the the TERFs who call themselves feminists? They are trans-exclusionary radical feminists, to be exact, but they don't support trans women. Yeah, this one is really tricky for me because, you know, there are some conservative trans-exclusionary people who are clearly not feminists by any measure, and they would run a mile from that term. and then. Some of the women who misgender trans women and men, who have zero empathy for trans people, who I'm sure just don't recognize the existence of non-binary people, they are undoubtedly feminists in other ways. You know, they've been involved in feminist causes. They've done the political work. If we're applying litmus tests, they pass until we get to this one topic. And then when it comes to that topic... You know, I just want to tell them that trans people are not the enemy. Expanding the notion of gender, that is not the enemy. And doesn't it worry you that many of the people who work so hard to restrict the rights of trans people are the exact same people who fought and are still fighting to restrict the rights of cis queer people and cis women? So, you know, are those women feminists? Yes, until we get to this one topic, and then they are definitely not. And then... I really don't know how to deal with that. That's something that here in Britain is there's there are a lot of feminists who are just have awful views of trans people and and anything that challenges the binary. And you know, I know what I, what I'm about to say is something that makes those feminists crazy, but it seems very clear to me that transphobia is a view that will age very, very poorly. You know, I simply cannot believe that feminists, let's let's attach one definition, you know, people who believe in the seven demands that I mentioned earlier could hold onto transphobic views. Or it's possible, I guess, that this is the topic that will lead to a feminist schism, which I guess is always possible. And certainly the religious right would love that. That's kind of what they're hoping for, I think. Again, it goes back to the Sinead O'Connor rule, which is know the enemy. And if you are 
dedicating yourself to a cause that your enemy is on board with. I mean, that should be so telling for these people that if the people that you have been fighting against in all of these other areas are now agreeing with you on this one area, it's like, maybe take a step back. But this isn't the only time that there's been a lot of internal conflict amongst feminists. I mean, we've had multiple waves of so-called feminism. And in every iteration up to and maybe especially today, there have been disagreements in how to get things done and the belief system, which makes sense because you've got a lot of people and a lot of different ideas to contend with. But I feel like it also makes it really difficult to wrap our arms around a movement. It opens a movement up to a lot of criticism because of that internal conflict. And I talked about this with the amazing NPR political correspondent Daniel Kurtzleben on last week's episode about how when you have these people that are making fun of feminists from within the movement, then the bad actors can really take advantage of that. I feel like there has been such a wave of the co-opting of valid feminist criticism, of feminists within the movement saying to the movement, hey, our, mo- our movement has some real problems. It has problems with race. It has problems with class, blah, 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 blah. And all of that criticism is often quite valid. But then often those criticisms get co-opted by people outside the movement. For example, girl boss. You know, I, I have heard ostensibly progressive men, you know, jokingly say about a powerful or ambitious woman, girl boss, gaslight, gatekeep. And I want to say, shut up. This is not like that. This is not for you to say. This is like I also you do you know really what you're saying? And I know you've been looking into this a bit historically for your book. So what are your thoughts on the complications around having one word try to mean so much? Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, over the years, there has been pushback, especially from women of color who sometimes pointed out that what was being called feminism was pretty clearly white feminism because racism wasn't being challenged in this supposedly big umbrella of actions that women were taking. So you had Alice Walker define herself as a womanist in the late 70s, early 80s. And a lot of women of color have embraced that term since then. And I guess generally when splits have happened within the women's movement, it has usually been when a subsection of women have felt that they were being disrespected or worse by others in the movement. So in the 70s, you saw lesbians leaving now, which at the time, it's a little bit hard to believe at this point, but at the time, now really was the cutting edge of mainstream feminists. And a whole bunch of women walked away because the leadership was just openly homophobic. Now, in part, that was because they were afraid that they would be dismissed as lesbians, which you know, now I think, oh, what a great opportunity to challenge homophobia. But, you know, that's asking too much of people 50 years ago. So, no, those women, you know, they they kind of inter- they'd in- internalized that homophobia. And so, yeah, so that led to a split. And, you know, at the same time, some lesbians split with the early gay with the early gay liberation movement because they were sick of the guys' sexism. So in those cases, lesbians formed their own lesbian feminist organizations, but they still thought of themselves as feminists and often still joined in feminist campaigns. So to give one concrete example, the Atlanta Lesbian Feminist Alliance, or ALPHA, 
which had exactly the origin story I just described. It was created by lesbian feminists who were sick of the sexism from men in the Gay Liberation Front and the anti-lesbianism from women in the Atlanta Women's Liberation Group. So they organized their own things. But they also took part in, for example, pro-ERA rallies, and they still went to Pride, you know, with the guys. But they recognized that their priorities didn't align with the priorities of straight women who were terrified of being thought of as lesbians or the priorities of gay men who were often, you know, in, had very different concerns from theirs as lesbian women. So they, st- they didn't change their belief. They didn't decide that they were no longer feminists. It just that plain feminism, I don't know, plain, but, you know, without any kind of uh, adjective affixed to it, just wasn't their priority anymore. It is amazing to me how deep the homophobia has run in not just like the feminist movement, but in like people's perception of feminists. Like Mm -hmm. even when I was growing up, I remember boys you know, dumb boys and, you know, just constantly being like, oh, well, if you're a feminist, you're you're a man-hating lesbian. Like that was like sort of like the big dig. And it's incredible that even within the feminist movement, there wasn't more of an effort to stop that or to say, or as you say, use it as an opportunity to challenge homophobia. I just think it's one of those things where it's it's very easy to, you know, kind of forget how much things have changed. I mean, things have changed hugely just in the last five, 10 years. So yeah, 50 years ago, it's it's very hard to expect people to have had, you know, the same attitudes. It, it, we, we can't expect that. Um, and, and just using the word feminist, you know, I remember I used to have a little button that had the women's symbol on, like people used to treat it like it was so crazy radical, but you know what? It was. It was. There, there were a lot of laws. There were a lot of restrictions, and you know, many of them still apply. So, uh, yeah, it, it is crazy, uh, and I really, really hope it's changed now. But yeah, it, it's not that long ago that people had these just pretty awful attitudes. We're going to take a break here, but if you want to hear more from June and myself on another topic, check out our final Big Tears Slate Plus segment. Today, we're actually going to debate what is the most feminist holiday. I mean, I, I mean, again, should we even be saying feminist? Maybe not. We're still considering the usefulness of the word, but it's going to be a great segment. So please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, bonus content of shows across the Slate network. To learn more about that, go to slate.com slash the waves plus. You definitely need to be a member if you want to hear this final plus segment. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Shayna Roth. I'm with June Thomas. We're talking about the word feminist. June, should we care about this word feminist? I've had such mixed feelings about it for so long, and it seems like plenty of today's women do too. One minute it's in vogue and you see all these like Instagram feminists with their t-shirts and their hats going on about toppling the patriarchy. And I spoke about that a little bit with Danielle Kurtzleben on last week's episode. But a lot of that seems to have gone away and never really felt that genuine to begin with. I mean, when we get to the everydayness of life, 
it feels, I don't know, almost silly to say I'm a feminist or at a minimum, like there's no telling how people are going to react to that word. So, I mean, does it matter what we people who think that women should be treated like humans <laughs> use a stock Google phrase should call ourselves? Yeah. Well, I, and it's funny, as you said that, I just like when people I do occasionally come across women who say they're not feminists and I always it, it, it just always grabs my attention. Sometimes it's because they want to use a more radical word, but sometimes they 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 just don't see it for themselves. And that always shocks me. Um, I'm on the fence about this word. I mean, when we see what's going on in Texas, which obviously is a proxy for the reproductive rights of women in vast swaths of the country, when we see how transgender people, particularly trans kids, are being targeted and their physical and mental health is being threatened in so many states, it's hard to think of nomenclature and you know what we call ourselves as being all that important. Who cares what we call each other? We need to get organized to fight these laws. At the same time, it worries me that so many young people are uncomfortable with that label. I mean, that says something. I came across a 2018 survey, so it's a little old, and it's also of British adults, but I was it still it shocked me so much. I think it's worth mentioning. So one in three people, one in three men and women um, in white collar jobs called themselves a feminist. That means two in three didn't, while only one in five in a group that included manual workers, pensioners, casual workers, and the unemployed, uh, you know, I took on that description for themselves. So that's mind boggling. But then the second part of it is that eight out of 10 people in both those groups said they believed that men and women should be equal in every way. I mean, that's exactly where I get confused. I mean, like, we believe in the meaning, but we can't bring ourselves to say the word. I mean, this is something I ran into, like, way back in college, where I would be thinking, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm just so smart uber feminist over here because I was big in the English department. And I'd be, like, <laughs> talking to guys, like, I don't even know where. And I'd be like, so are you a feminist? And they'd be like, no, man. I'd be like, oh, well, don't you believe that women and men should be equal? And they'd be like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, boom. So you're a feminist. Thinking, like, I got them. Like, I don't know. But this is something I've always just been so mind boggled by. I know. And and I guess it shows, again, that there's something about this word that turns people off. And, you know, in, in the case of lower income people rejecting that label, I remember also something that Danielle said on last week's episode, that the women's movement has never fought hard enough for low wage women, for working class women. So people's rejection of the term feminist isn't necessarily about the underlying philosophy. It can be about what the women's movement as it's perceived, because again, there really isn't a women's movement. There's lots of people doing stuff all over the place, but it's the perception of what the women's movement has focused on that I think puts some people off. And, and actually in that case, it's really hard to, to, to disagree, you know, it, it, that is a failure. Um, but you know, I, I see another example, um, in the last few years, some women, mostly younger women, but not entirely, have preferred to call themselves queer rather than lesbian. Now, there are lots of reasons. Some are non-binary or generally moving away from the gender binary. Some want a term that acknowledges that they're attracted to all kinds of people, maybe accepts cis men. 
And some are just distancing themselves from what they see as the failures of old school lesbians. And I'm sure there are still other reasons. I, I don't mean to suggest that that's, you know, a comprehensive list of, of why people are avoiding that label. But again, does it matter? Well, it's an indication of failure. It's an opportunity for growth, for change. At the same time, fight the real enemy. You know, other lesbians are very rarely the real enemy. And, and, and as I started off by saying, this isn't a top-down movement with leaders and chapters and Jews. How would you ever get people to abandon the term feminist and find another better label. You know, it's not like there's another term that a whole bunch of people are pushing and we're just, you know, waiting for the word to, you know, take off our feminist badge and put on this new one. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it's, it's frustrating and the lack of comfort with the term suggests we do have to do better, but the things we have to do better about aren't about finding a better term. They're, voting so that Republicans don't get to nominate all these conservative Supreme Court justices. We have to oppose these terrible pieces of legislation that are being pushed across the country. We should have fought harder against things like welfare reform. We shouldn't have allowed Merrick Garland's nomination to the Supreme Court to just be ignored. But we didn't. So, you know, next round. But uh, it that's the way that we fix the image problem is to take better action, I think. Do you think the word matters? Like, should we just be like, all right, T-shirts or no, I'm calling myself a feminist, even with all the messy accoutrements that come with it. Or do you think we need to find a way toward some type of fresh start? Mm, I, I don't know. I, I do want to remember how radical it once was to say I'm a feminist. Uh, I'm also Thinking back again to what we were discussing earlier, how in the 70s, fear of being called a lesbian, being perceived of as a lesbian, having somebody just think it of you was, you know, pushed some women to take very unfeminist stands and to ignore a section of the movement, a, a very active uh, section of the movement as it happens. You know, also just a big chunk of womankind, of humanity, they, they out of fear of, of a label, they pushed those women out of the mainstream feminist movement. So obviously words have meaning, words have baggage. They have different baggage in 2023 than they had in 1973. But I don't know, I feel it feels like a useful lesson. We shouldn't forget how the the kind of derangement about about words um, can can cause uh, cause groups to fall apart. And you know, we're still seeing that kind of weaponization of words and ideas and fear, especially around trans issues and gender issues. But again, it comes back to me to what is the alternative? You know, women have taken on new terms, womanist, radical queer, lesbian feminist, others. But what's the alternative generic term for a mainstream feminist? If we don't use the F word, what do we call ourselves? We could always try to reclaim the C word. Shayna, that's the only <laughs> C word I'm going to take on. June, since it's our last show, you requested that we bring back an old favorite, endorsements, where we talk about something that brings us joy in the mess of 2023. I was more than happy to oblige. June, you go first. What are you endorsing? 
Oh, so I made this plea because I read the most amazing book last week. It's one that I saw on, uh, you know, best of lists. And I was like, well, I guess. And they were right. It is amazing. It's called We Were Once a Family, A Story of Love, Death and Child Removal in America by Roxana Asgarian, a Texas writer. It starts with the awful story of the hearts, two white women who adopted six black and mixed race children mistreated them terribly and eventually killed them and themselves uh, sending their car off a cliff. So that's the terrible place where the book starts. But it just goes really deep into the systems that allow that kind of tragedy to happen, especially why it's so easy to remove kids from black families, why it's so hard for black families to get their children back. It's just beautifully written, exquisitely researched. It is a heartbreaking, enraging book, but oh my God, it's stunning. It's it, it's an amazing achievement. I just, I'm in awe of Roxana Asgarian and how she wrote this book. It's just fantastic. It is an incredible book. And we actually had Roxana Asgarian on The Waves back in March. Oh my goodness. I missed that episode. Yes. So if you're finishing up this episode and feeling a little bit sad and want some more waves, go back and listen to that interview. It was a really great interview with Daisy Rosario and Roxana. Um, so For my final recommendation, I'm going to be selfish on two fronts. First, I'm going to recommend my book that came out in November. (laughs) It's a true crime collection of cases called Between Two Wars about really fascinating people and events that took place between the end of the Civil War and the start of World War II. There's a train heist, gambling, spies, yes, one serial killer, but it's about so much more than murder. So if you're doing any last minute holiday shopping, I think it's a good get. I also want to push June's book, which is coming out next year. June, why don't you just give us the the quick byline of your book that's coming out next year? Yes, so it'll be out May 28th in the United States and a couple of weeks later in Britain. It's called A Place of Our Own, Six Spaces That Shaped Queer Women's Culture. Um, Yeah, I'm very excited. I just made the last tweaks to the proof, so it's kind of out of my hands. I just have to let the world know about it now. Uh, But yeah, I hope people like it. And I just checked Shana and I was so glad to see that your book is available in the UK. So I am going to go out and get that ASAP. It somehow escaped my attention. What's your other recommendation? It sounded like you had another one in mind. I do. It's, you know, it's the winter time. So I have to recommend an old movie. It's called The Lady Vanishes. And it's absolutely perfect for winter. It takes place during like this big winter storm on a train. It's an Alfred Hitchcock movie that has had a few iterations, but I recommend the 1938 original starring Michael Redgrave and Margaret Lockwood. I don't know if recommending a Hitchcock film is the most feminist thing ever, but it is based on a book written by a woman, Ethel Lena White, and it's about a woman on a train being gaslit into believing that this other woman that she had met earlier and can no longer find never existed at all. I mean, there's some topical themes there for you. It's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's thrilling. It's funny. Michael Redgrave will make you swoon despite one of the worst stage fights I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. It's a it's a true delight. Just just get cozy, get a nice beverage, and, and curl up to the lady vanishes. Shane, I have to tell you, Margaret Lockwood is one of my absolute heroes. Everything she's in is fantastic, and I love the way that she's always styled. Like she's always in a lot of tweeds, yes! and I love that. I, I I can't believe I I've lived in Scotland now for eighteen months. I still don't have a full Margaret Lockwood set of tweeds, but the day is coming. I'm telling you. If I watch this movie again, I'm sure that will you know set me over the edge. 
June, the goat of the waves. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us here for our final episode of The Waves. Oh, thank you for having me, Shana. It's a sad day, but also what a fantastic show. Well, let's uh, let's just spend a bit of time reflecting on just the the amazing debates and uh, stories that that the show has covered. Uh, thanks so much for for the work that you've done on the show these last few years. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by myself, Shayna Roth, with help from Vic Whitley-Berry, who has been indispensable as we've brought the Waves to the finish line. Daisy Rosario is Senior Supervising Producer. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio. And that's it for The Waves. This is our last episode as we go into suspension. I just want to say that it has been an absolute honor and privilege to have worked on this show. Thank you so much for tuning in. <laughs>